Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be working this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians 2. We're going to be working specifically in verses 12 through 18. While you're, while you're turning that, I just want to set the scene of this letter for you, uh, really just a little bit. Paul is writing this letter, obviously, to the church in Philippi, and he's writing it from a prison cell, okay, most likely in Rome. We know that Paul, we know that he loved the church there in Philippi, uh, that, that he and it's not just an ambiguous or an impersonal type of love. It's not, like he's genuinely thankful for them. Uh, he knows them. Uh, he knows them deeply. He knows them intimately. He has spent time with them. He has, he's lived among them. He's, he's walked among them. He's served among them. He's even seen God move uh, in, in power, in and through these people. And we see that expressed in the early part of this letter where he said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. Okay, so you, you see, these are like his people. These, these are his people. And so we can understand that when he is writing to them, he, he knows them. He, it's not just he's writing a letter to a group. He's writing to his people and so he has individuals, even maybe individual faces in his mind as he's writing to them. He, he knows Lydia. He knows, he knows the jailer from Philippi. He knows the slave girl. He's got them, he's got them there in his mind. And so, and so he's thankful for them. He's thankful for them, and, and, and not just as individuals, but also as a, as a corporate body because they're his partners in the gospel. And they have been his partners, we're told, from, from the first day until now. And it's that now, it's the now that we are concerned with here this morning. Even though he is apart from them, even though he is far away from them, far removed from them, and even though the shadow of death is hanging over Paul in this moment while he sits in, in prison, he says, how I yearn for you. How I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. He feels so strongly for these people that he compares it to the affection of Christ for the church. I, have, I literally have written in my Bible, you can't see it, but it says, love the church like this. This, this is Paul saying, this is what it looks like as a pastor to love your people. This is his expression to them. And so if you're one of those who writes in there, you can do that too. Love the church like this. Paul is expressing a level of love and compassion, a level of concern and interest in these people, in these, these partners in the gospel that serves here as a picture for us of how we ought to uh, love one another and live with one another. He is deeply concerned for their unity. Not, not just as people, not just as individuals, but also as, as a people, as, as a singularity, as, as a church, and as a living organism. He wants there to be unity, unity in them. And so he challenges them back in 127. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, that you are that you are striving with one mind side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is an appeal by Paul for corporate unity. And it's not, and we need to be careful, it's not an appeal to passivity. 
It's not an appeal to silence. It's not an appeal to cowardice. It's not a, an appeal to, to indifference even. He, that, that's not what Paul is calling for here. And we can make the mistake at times, to allow, or at least I can, to allow my fear, my personal doubt, my personal hesitations, my personal fear to somehow masquerade as humility. But we need to be careful and guard against that. We need to guard against that because he wants to hear of them not just being there, but standing firm together, striving together side by side, not for the sake of their sports team, okay? Not for the sake of, of their school, and, and not, not, even, not even for the sake of their families. He wants to hear how these beloved brothers are striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he gives us, at the beginning of chapter 2, he gives us this ultimate example of what this looks like when he shows us this pic- picture of the humility of Jesus Christ. He's the example. Jesus is the supreme model of what this looks like. He is the perfect blueprint of the child of God, and that flows right into our passage here this morning. So let's go Philippians 2. I'm going to start in verse 12 and go through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would that you would speak, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, that you would awaken our souls even now that we might draw near to you, that we might that we might be in your presence. God, by your spirit work in our hearts to give us understanding, to give us clarity to illumine our minds that we might know you more in order that we might go forth and serve you better. Lord, I pray that in all ways you would move me aside. Don't let me distract from what you're trying to do here today. Uh, Don't let me get in the way. Don't let my stammering tongue stand in the way of what you would say. And so I pray that you would speak and that we might hear. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Paul has, again, he's given us this portrait of Jesus Christ at the beginning of of chapter 2. He's given us this perfect blueprint for what it looks like to live as a child of the living God. He's he's pointed us to Christ, as he always does, who, who, though he was in the form of God, did did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's Jesus, okay? He's the one who, who had everything, who knew everything, who, who created everything. He's, the, he's, he's what the author of Hebrews 
uh, tells us is that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And that he upholds the universe even now by the word of his power. Okay, so that's Jesus. Now, Jesus is the one who's going to bring the good work to completion in his time. And so Paul has told the Philippians that God has highly exalted him, that he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And ultimately, this is to the glory of God the Father. And so our response is, or it should be yes and amen. This is, it's, if you read through this letter, it feels like this is the high point. This is the crescendo. And so if I'm preaching this sermon, if I'm just reading it, I'm ready to cue up the hymn of praise to get ready for the benediction because the thing is just about over. But Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't stop. You see, he's not finished. And so the first word of our passage, that word therefore, is the same as saying, so because of this, because, of, because Jesus has been highly exalted, because he has been given, been given the name that is above every name, because he is Lord, because of all of this, because of all of who he is, therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Remember, Paul is away in prison. And so he says, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. When, when I was in high school, I played football. Now, I know that, might, that, that is probably hard for you to believe looking at me. Um, and I honestly, I think I've made it almost five years without one illustration from high school football. So you guys are welcome for that. Um, I've, I've really... I think I've done a good job. But there was a time when I actually played football. And I'm talking, like, and just for clarification, because soccer's made a bit of a rise here in the States, American football. So I, I played that sport. And, and, and when I played, we had to do these summer workouts, right? And so going into my senior year, I, I would work all, this is during the summer, I'd work all day in the electrical business. So we had to be there at seven. We left at five. I would drive from there to the high school and, and we would lift weights, which I hated. And then we would run, which I thought, okay, that's not so bad. Um, our strength coach at the time, he, he was great. He, he, had, he was a smart man. He'd been around youth for a long time. Time And so he understood the immaturity of the players that he was working with. And, and that meant, because he understood that, that meant that he never missed a day. I, I honestly, I still don't know that that man has ever taken a day of vacation in his life. And, and, but, but his thinking was simple. He knew that if he was not there, that if he weren't present, like visibly present, actively present, present, actively coaching, actively holding his players accountable, actively pushing and challenging his players every day, he knew that they would, he knew that we would take it easy. He knew that we would relax. He knew that we wouldn't push ourselves. He knew that we would rest in what we had done maybe the day before. You see, what Paul understood the, the reality of this condition in, in humanity. And that's why he's encouraging them. That's why he's challenging them here, okay? He knew that we are naturally predisposed to resting on what has been accomplished in the past. That we are wired to do that. To say, look at what we've done. 
Look how great we are. Look at, and even if we're like really humble, look at what God has done through us. Right? I mean, that's how we, that's how we say it. You see, Paul knew that the church in Philippi, even in its present legacy of hopeful obedience, would be tempted to be satisfied in what they had been rather than pushing forward, rather than striving forward, straining forward to to what God desires for them to be in the end. He he understood what what D.A. Carson would call uh, grace-driven effort. The grace-driven effort that's needed to walk faithfully each day as children of the living God. And so he tells them here, Paul tells them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, don't be confused here. This is not a push for some sort of works-based righteousness, okay? This isn't justification by virtue of good deeds. He's writing to the church. We've got to remember that. He's writing to the church, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. And so these are believers. These are faithful people. Remember, he was there. He knows them. He was there when the Holy Spirit first began to to move in these people. And so this isn't a call for them to somehow try and merit salvation. Paul knows that's impossible. This is a call to practice faithfulness. It's It's a call to what I'm calling enduring obedience. And this And this is something you probably already know, but I'm going to say it anyway. Enduring obedience is not natural. We don't come wired with that from the start. It's an abnormal thing. It's an alien thing. You see, we we don't naturally drift toward holiness. That's not the way our hearts work. We're We're not just naturally going to shift into the lane leading us to holy living This is what D.A. Carson says. He says, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. That's not how people work. That's not how we're wired. And so Carson continues, we drift. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. That's the natural flow of our hearts when pressed by the world. I cannot begin to tell you the depths of my appreciation for the people of St. Andrews. And it's not a stretch in any way to echo the words of Paul in 1.3 where he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you with joy. And I, and I could keep going. These are all true statements. I am grateful for your faithful witness, uh, not just in this community, but in my life, in my family's life. I am thankful that you have followed the leading of God's Spirit and given your lives for the advancement of the gospel. I I stand before you grateful today. I have been a witness to this work. 
to this faithfulness that you have displayed in your lives. I've gotten to see that. Therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Please do not be tempted to rest in what you did yesterday. Don't be content with the past glories that you have been privileged to participate in and to witness as God's people because tomorrow is going to come. And unless the sky parts and the Son of Man appears in glory, tomorrow you're going to have work to do. You're still going to be called to participate in the witness of the gospel because Because with the breaking of the dawn tomorrow is going to come new challenges to your faith. You will be tempted to drift not toward godliness, but toward yourself. Enduring obedience means keeping your eyes fixed on Christ, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Enduring obedience means doing the hard work of standing firm and striving for the faith of the gospel. Enduring obedience means, as as Paul is going to say in chapter 3, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Enduring obedience means that if you are lazy in your faith, if you are content to let what you have done in the past, and look, I know you went on that mission trip. That was amazing. And I remember that one time in college where I shared the gospel. Now listen, For some of y'all, college is a long time ago. It it might be time to add to that testimony. If you're content to let what you've done in the past stand in the place of what God is calling you to do now, I'll just tell you, you are not going to like the book of Philippians. And for those of you who might rightly say, okay, yeah, I get that, but I can't do it. Honestly, Paul agrees with you. Uh, he, He knows you can't. He knows that you can't do it on your own because he knows that he can't do it on his own. That's what what the fear and trembling is all about in there. That's what the awe and the reverence are all about. We see this ultimate perfect blueprint of Christ at the beginning of chapter 2. We work to grow in our walk with him, to look like him, to think like him, to live and move and breathe and act like him in everything that we do. And we recognize how far short we fall of his glory. But, but Paul concludes in verse 13. Look at 13 again. It says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is what Dennis Johnson calls the mysterious interplay between divine initiative and enabling on the one hand and human participation on the other. You see, even the desire, even the desire to do the things that God commands comes from God. He's the source. He's the source. And we need to remember the corporate nature of this letter. This, it's being written to the church as a whole. And, and verses 12 and 13 should not, only, should not just be seen as individual mandates. Kent, Kent Hughes says that this is a both-and text that focuses first on the communal conduct of the church, which of course includes individual behavior. This challenge to the Philippians to work out their salvation was both to all of them as a body and to each of them as individuals. Together, 
continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's enduring obedience. It's recognizing that our salvation includes not only being reconciled to God through the cross, but being reconciled also to one another through the cross. And then he gives us a practical picture of what this looks like in the next section. Look back at 14. Look at 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We're we're called to that enduring obedience. And here we say that this is an enduring call. Okay? And what I mean is is that obedience happens not just in the dramatic moments of life, Okay, not just when the world is crashing down around you and it feels like everything is falling apart and not when everything seems to be right and you're floating on the clouds. It it also happens, maybe particularly happens in the mundane details of life. This reference to grumbling and disputing is, is directly tied to the story of the Israelites in Exodus 15. It's when they grumbled against Moses when when there was nothing but bitter water to drink. And then in Exodus 16, we see that just two and a half months, just two and a half months after being liberated from 400 years of slavery in Egypt by the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of God, that the, this is what it says, that the whole congregation, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You see, Paul is concerned because he knows his history, he's concerned that the Philippians are headed down a tragically familiar path. Now listen, nobody has ever positively commended the Israelites for their faith in the wilderness. That's never been a bright spot for them. In contrast to that picture, we have this picture of Christ in the early part of chapter 2. You see, we have the Israelites really for most of their history being disobedient, and yet we get this picture of Christ and his humility and obedience. He stands in contrast to the people. Instead of obedience to Christ, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, we see these entitled, these grumbling, these complaining people of Israel on one page walk through the Red Sea as on dry ground, and then on the next page, complain about their temporal provisions as if God would have done the miracle of bringing them through the sea to let them thirst to death and starve on the other side. But, but the righteous branch from Jesse, okay, the true vine, Jesus Christ stands in contrast to the people of God as being faithful in the ordinary, in the mundane, in the day to day. It's the enduring call of God to what the Bible simply calls holiness. Listen, that call to holiness, that call is unconditional. The call to holiness is indifferent to your geographical location. The call to holiness is indifferent to your aptitude. The call to holiness is indifferent to your present financial standing. The call to holiness is indifferent to your present health condition. The call to holiness is indifferent, honestly, to your personal comfort in every way. You see, even Peter, even Peter, who we know had, had, his, had his own troubles with humility and submission, wrote, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
Peter says to be holy, not, not just on Sundays, not just when you're in church, but in all your conduct. He says to be holy, okay, okay, be, be set apart, be distinct, be consecrated unto God at the restaurant, out at the ball field, when you're at the football game or the concert, be holy on Friday night. Be holy on Saturday night. Paul says to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things. You know, you know what that means? You know what grumbling is? Gr- grumbling's quiet. Grumbling is under your breath. Some of us have, uh, some of us think it's a gift. <laughs> grumbling's that thing that, that happens when. Uh, when your kid slams the door and walks out of the room and you hear something. I'm a varsity level grumbler. I'm willing to admit that to y'all. I'm not, I'm not good at the face-to-face confrontation, but if you ask Laurie, she'll tell you, I speak to our garage a lot. <laughs> it never answers back. Never. Just hear my pathetic voice out there. That's grumbling. Grumbling's that quiet junk that we do when we're upset, but we, we really have no good reason. Disputing is louder. That's the argument. Disputing is the debate. By the way, some people also think we're gifted in this way. I'm, I'm not sure social media has done anything to curb uh, the social gifting and disputing. Both of these are toxic. And both of them, if you really look at it, In this text, both of these, both the grumbling and the disputing that Paul is speaking of, they're not with your neighbor. They're not with uh, the community. They're not with the culture. These grumblings and these disputes are between one another and they're with the Lord. Now, most of the time when my kids are grumbling and complaining, when they're disputing with me, it causes some tension in my heart. Uh, And really for a couple of reasons. So I'll give you one. I'll give you one reason that it causes that type of tension. One reason that that behavior causes tension in my heart is simply because I want them to trust me. I want my children, I want all of my children to trust me at all times, okay? To trust that I have their best interest in mind. Now listen, I, I, am, I am terribly flawed, okay? Unlike, unlike our Heavenly Father who is perfect, but I, I want my kids to trust that it, it, at the core, I have their interest in mind. And that is my love for them, even in that moment, my heart for them that leads me to say yes in some instances and, and no at other times. I want them to remember that because there are times when they're, when they're going to be drawn in one direction, when, when their hearts are going to pull them in a direction that is not safe, in a direction that is not good, that is not healthy, that is not right for them. And in those moments, we want them to trust us that we have their best interests in hearts. That's, that's one reason. I just, I just want them to trust us. We want them to trust that our love for them is greater than the temptation to simply say yes for the sake of a moment of ease. The other reason, and, and this one might seem a little bit more self-serving, the other reason that that type of behavior, that, that, that the grumbling and, di- and disputing creates tension in my heart is because they're not reflecting in that moment the image that I want my children to reflect. 
And when they are actively engaged in grumbling and disputing, it reflects poorly, not just on them, but on me as their father. And that's really what Paul's getting at here. If you look back at 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and and twisted generation. Now, who does that sound like? Who, who, Who is the blameless one, right? Who is the innocent one? He says, there's only been one person ever. In all of time, only one person who was ever really blameless and innocent. There's only been one labeled as, who's accurately been labeled any of those things to be without blemish. He was the only one, of all the people that John the Baptist met beside the river, he's the only one that he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everybody else he called into the water. In this passage, Paul is challenging the believers at Philippi. He's challenging these children of the living God to to look like, to reflect the truth that they are children of the living God. And so he tells them to, to behave in such a way, to not be grumblers and complainers, to not be disputers, so that in this way, you will actually look like the children of God. This isn't an appeal to every one of them to be preachers in the formal sense that we typically think. He's not calling on them the great feats of of might and power in the name of the Lord. This is what he's calling them to is the enduring call on believers to enduring obedience so that, look at 15, so that you will shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This is how you reflect the glory of Christ. You reflect the glory of Christ, what I'm calling the relentless light of Christ by following the blueprint and walking in the way of Christ. And conveniently, you don't even have to be creative. You don't have to imagine what it would look like because you've been given the blueprint in Christ to look at. When I was in the electrical business from time to time, we would be on a job site, it was usually Rick and I out there, and some question would arise as to the next step in the process. You know, something related to the size of the conduit or the, or the size of the wiring that's supposed to go in it or, or, or anything else related to the details of constructing the building just as it was designed. And we would always say, and it became sort of the catchphrase, it was simply, let's consult the plan. Um, and that I don't know why we said it that way, honestly, other than I think it sounded way better than just, let's go look at those pieces of paper sitting over here. Um, Consult the blueprint. You know, that's essentially what Paul says in verse 16. Look at verse 16 when he says that they are to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, that they are to consult the plan, they're to know the word of life. It's not that they are simply to be around the word of life, like sitting in a room like this. They're supposed to intimately, personally engage with the word of life. That's the gospel. The word of life is the good news that that now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus did not just go to the cross so that you could get into heaven. 
He didn't die on the cross just for your benefit, although we obviously benefit from the reconciliation that His atonement bought for us. He went to the cross for the glory of God the Father and, and so that you might reflect that glory in His creation. That is the relentless light of the gospel. And you, St. Andrews, are to be beacons of that light. And the other night, it was already dark. We were driving back from Lexington uh, to our home. We were coming uh, just right at the right back across the dam, before it drops down into the most scary and scariest environment imaginable, you know? It's like the reserve dam is great, but if this thing breaks, we're done. Um, I'm going to have to get used to that. Uh, basically, risk your life every day. Um, my, my son, Tucker, was with me, and he's looking out the window, you know, it's out the right window, and he, he, he's looking off into the distance, and he saw this one extremely bright light just shining in the darkness of the horizon. And he asked what it was, and I told him that it's actually the light that shines on our youth field uh, right out here. Uh, you, you, you can't miss it. Um, even if you try, it'll, it'll get you. And, and, and then from there we recognized, or he recognized that the steeple was there and that it's also illuminated at night. And, and, and then we had this little talk, and it wasn't, any, I don't want to make more out of it than it was, but a little talk where I'm as dad saying, all right, seize the moment here, don't, don't mess this up. And we were reminded, we were reminded of the goodness of God, of his saving work that he has called us, that he has saved us in Christ, and that now he has commissioned us, like you and I, not just the people in this side or the people who sit in the front or not just the people who are back there. He commissioned all of us, you and I, to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. to be lights in the world, shining the relentless light of God's glory reflected in lives of holiness. Here's what I know. I know that every time I drive across that dam, I'm going to look out my window, okay? I do it now, I always have, and I always will. And I'm going to see that crazy light with its ridiculous brightness, okay? And it's obvious wasted wattage. And anyway, and I'm going to thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Joey, we made it past the time. <laughs> Always. I really like you people. Um, and every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you for your enduring obedience. Thank you for being a reminder 
of the enduring call of God on our lives. And thank you for reflecting the relentless light of God's glory, not just in this community, but in my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes I enjoy the quiet right at the end of a message. I enjoy that moment of silence. I pray that what's happened here today will bring you glory, that it'll bring you honor. Lord, I pray for these folks, this family of mine. Don't let them stop. Keep pushing forward. Keep pressing on them. Help them to shine on. That we might see, that we might remember, and that we might give you praise. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.